Amen. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, and we'll bring the prophecy or the book of the prophet Haggai to a close today. And I pray it's been a profitable journey. The prophet Haggai had an interesting ministry, prophetic ministry, called by God to speak to a people returned from exile into the land, a people who were called back for a purpose, weren't they? To not just come back and build an impressive city and walls, that's necessary if they're going to live there, but the primary reason to come back was to be in the land that God had promised them, in the place that God had given them, with the sign of His covenant with them in the center of their lives, the temple. The temple was torn down. Cyrus recognized this is needed to be rebuilt. He wanted to see the God of glory worship. This is decreed long before it happened that this is what would happen. And so they're sent back. Those that will go, go, build. Those who are not going to go, give an offering to help fund and provide for the, the precious materials that are needed. Well, we know that they get back. And Haggai's primary purpose is to come and say, more or less, what are you doing? Right? What are you doing? It's been 20 years since you were sent back roughly. What are you doing? You've come back and you got to a bit of a start and then very quickly became discouraged and stopped. And here all these years later, the temple sits in ruins. And of course, you've got your excuses. We all have our excuses, don't we? Their excuse is, it's not yet the time. Right? In God's appointed schedule of events, it's not yet the time to build this temple once more. And Haggai, we talked about this two weeks ago, kind of mocking them, says, but it was the time to finish your own homes. It was the time to do all that fine carpentry work on your own homes. You had no time for the temple, the entire purpose of your coming back. And so again, he says, get about it. Look at what's happening as a result of your disobedience. You're in violation of the covenant God made with you. How can you be in keeping with it? Because the tabernacle was at the heart of what it meant to be of the people of Israel. It's the place of intercession and mediation and sacrifice. And the temple is the permanent uh, fixture of that, if you will, up until the coming of the true temple, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, be about this. You need this. And until you're obedient in this way, then instead of blessing, you'll receive the cursings of the covenant. Those are laid out in the Torah. There are cursings if you disobey and you're experiencing them. You sow and sow and sow, you do not reap and reap and reap. You sow much, you reap little. You put money into your pocket or a money bag, and you go for it later, and you find a hole there. Oh, that's where it went. Right out the other side, right? There's going to be some more pictures of that today. But Haggai is called to say, this is going to continue. It is not solvable by you. It isn't solvable to simply say, well, next year we need a bigger field to sow, or we need to sow more seed or better seed. None of that is the problem. The problem is not the seed. It's not the, the sower in this case. It's the fact that God isn't going to bless your harvest because you're in violation of His covenant. And so this is a very specific message to them. Get about doing what you're called to do. Get about rebuilding the temple. And so that was what we looked at week one, the call to do that. Well, we looked last week at just a few weeks later, in discouragement, I should say, I should say encouragement, discouragement set in, didn't it? Well, why? Well, discouragement is easy to set in at times, but here it was the complaints of a generation that had seen the original temple. As they began to 
to map out the work and, and plan out the materials, they began to say, oh, it's not going to be as great. It's not going to be as great. It'll be good, of course. It's the temple. It's the place where God abides with his people, the place of sacrifice, intercession. But, oh, grandkids, if you could have seen Solomon's temple, if you could have seen it, it's the heights of glory. We'll never have that again. So again, there's this dismissiveness of what God is doing. There's an overlooking of what God is doing. There's a negativity about it, and it brings discouragement. And the problem with discouragement is it weakens people. Have you ever had something you were really excited to do? Then somebody said, just the thing that's going to discourage you, and it's almost like you just want to just quit on it. It's just like there's no strength left to do it. That's what happened here. There was a clear discouragement. And so Haggai comes again to say, ultimately, they're wrong, right? The, the people who are saying that, that this latter temple will not be as grand or as glorious as the former, they're wrong. And why are they wrong? Because they can't possibly know what God is doing. I mean, He's told them, but they clearly haven't heard it. They've acted as if the greatest days in the work of the Lord amongst His people have passed. How wrong could they be? Right? Even the, the heights of the days under Solomon or the heights of the days under David are nothing compared to what is yet to come. We've had glorious days, haven't we, as Christians? There are days where maybe you're at church and the worship is just special that day. I heard David Crowder say that sometimes there's like times where you almost feel your feet leave the ground almost. Speaking figuratively, obviously. But, but he means there are days where the worship just seems good glorious. But that's nothing compared to what we've got coming, is it? There's nothing we're going to experience in this world that is going to be like what we'll experience in glory, in the presence of the Lord. In the same way, there's a reminder here, don't judge what God is doing by your current assessment of it. That's a mistake. And the Lord tells them plainly, no, the, this latter temple, this current one that you're about to rebuild will be more glorious. And we talked about that last week. It would be more glorious because it has an advanced place in the soteriological work of the Lord. Christ will be coming to that temple. Christ will be in the presence of this temple, and the temple points to Him anyway. Right? As God's dwelling amongst men, He's Emmanuel, God with us. Now we could go further than that and say that the New Testament teaches that we are the temple of God. Right? His people, the the spiritual stones, if you will, of the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. So you see this movement of God with His people. But it's important to recognize that He's saying, even at this time, in this place, in the economic working, if you will, or the typological working of God, it's important to recognize that this temple is important, and I've called you to build it, so get about it. So, encouraged once more, they begin to work. And I want to read this text one more time. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And so the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. 
Then Haggai answered and said, So is this my people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hand, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now this day, from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, of, uh, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn, as yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet yielded fruit? But from this day I will bless you. And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. All right, let's take a look at this text today, but I want us to look at three points. First of all, an important distinctive in worship. Second of all, a prophetic blessing is spoken. And third, a covenantal blessing is confirmed. So beginning first with this idea of an important distinctive in worship, Haggai returns with a message. And this is, you know, the last two messages were very close together. These are as well, it's about two months, middle of October to the middle of December, I think uh, 18th of October to the 17th of December. And he comes back again. Already the people need to hear another word, an important message, I think, of encouragement assigned to them. But it begins with a very interesting interaction between Haggai and the priests. God directs him to go to the priests and to get a verdict or a judgment on a theological question or really a question of the law. And so concerning the law, he asked them, I think the NESB is a little closer here because it says, Ask now the priest for a ruling. For a ruling. And that's what he's saying. Go to the priest and get them to judge something for you. To offer a matter to them and for them to come down and explain what the answer is. Now this is certainly in their purview, isn't it? Because Deuteronomy 33.10 in Moses' kind of farewell address to the people of Israel, he says this to the Levites. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. You shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Now notice there, part of the responsibilities of the Levites were to teach the law of God. That was one of their responsibilities. And so who do you go to if you need an answer on what the law says? You go to a Levite. You go to one of the priests. Later, there was a whole scribe order that raised up that became like lawyers of the law of the Torah. But here he goes and asks about this. And the wording is very interesting because it even includes, go ask this matter of the Torah, of the law of God. Go ask this matter. And what is he told to ask? It's a very practical question. He says, if there is holy meat, holy flesh, this would be meat that's been 
offered to God, right? It's already been sanctified as part of the sacrifice. So the meat is judged holy, and a priest, this would be the only person who could do this, put it in his garment to carry it, which they often did. They would kind of fold it up to carry it, to protect it also, to keep it from touching something unclean. That'll be in the question in a moment. But if he carries it in his garment, in his robe, if you will, which, by the way, is also accounted as holy when in the work and service of the Lord, and it touches something unholy. Notice the things that he says here. Touches bread or stew or any other food, wine, oil. If it comes into contact with those things, how that would happen, I don't know. Maybe he's trying to carry some bread along with the meat. The bread has not been obviously made holy by being part of the sacrifice. And the bread and the meat touch. Does the holiness of the bread, excuse me, of the meat make the bread holy? That's the question. Now, if you know anything of the Old Testament and the law, you'll know the answer to this very quickly. As they do, what do they say? The priests answered and said no. They didn't have to go research it. They didn't have to think about it. They knew the answer. If something is holy and it touches something unholy, the general rule of the law, the Torah is, it does not make the thing it comes in contact with holy. So, there's a counter question asked next. If one who is unclean, now the example he gives here is they've touched a dead body. That makes you ceremonially unclean according to the Torah. If someone is unclean because of a dead body and they touch any of these things, will it be made unclean? So now imagine a person who is ceremonially unclean goes and touches that holy meat. We now know from the first question that he isn't made holy. But does he make the meat unclean? They don't struggle to answer this one as well, do they? They say, yes, it shall be unclean. Now, there's an important principle here, isn't there? Holiness doesn't transfer by touch, right? But uncleanness does. Uncleanness does. And this is a problem we see throughout the Old Testament. There must be care taken to remain ceremonially clean. And this is a principle given throughout the Old Testament. Why does God say to drive out those in the land when they go into the promised land? We always think uh, all the time that the righteous people are going to bring the pagans up out of paganism into holy living. But it never happens that way in the Scriptures, does it? It's always that the pagans drag the people of Israel into idolatry. We've been going through judges. We've been seeing that time and again. Time and again, the principle is here as well. The principle is, if something clean touches something unclean, it is also made unclean. Now, it's just some interesting things, isn't it? Talking about the law. If maybe Haggai wouldn't have a greater purpose than just, let's make this clear. Do we understand it? But obviously there is a greater purpose because if you look at verse 14, it's applied to, to the remnant of Judah. Haggai answers. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord here. He says, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now the first thing he wants to establish is that they're unclean. Now why are they unclean? Well, they're sinners, right? They're unclean. We could trace this back all the way to Exodus and how God sets them apart as a holy people and says that they shall be unto him a holy people, a set-apart people. 
And He gives them the way to deal with their sin through the, the tabernacle, through sacrifices. Right? This is all given to them in keeping with their covenant on how they can, if you will, get rid of their uncleanness and stay ceremonially clean before God and be able to participate in the life, if you will, the religious life of Israel. But here's the problem for them now. Right? These systems are not happening the way they should. And these people are sinners because they're human beings. But they've sinned in a very noticeable way in this book, haven't they? They've disobeyed the command of God. God told them, go back and rebuild the temple. And they said, well, when we get around to it. When we get around to it. This is something as parents we recognize we don't allow in our children, right? When we're like, go clean your room. Eh, when I get around to it. Right? God doesn't like it either. When God says, go and build the temple, and we say, oh, we've got some other things we want to prioritize, God. We'll get back to you on it. This is being in sin. I mean, what is sin except harmatia? It means to, be, to miss the mark of what God has called us to do. It can be sins of commission and sins of omission. Here it is a sin of commission. They are deciding not to do what God has called them to do. And so they are a sinful people. But this is a problem when everybody is in sin, the entire community is unclean, and everything they touch is unclean. Why is this a problem? Who's going to touch the sacrifices? As soon as you touch the sacrifices, they become unclean. It's a systemic problem. And the results of it have been that a people are falling into a time of, of, of great problems. We've already talked about that. He says in chapter 1, you sow but you do not reap. You go to drink but it never quenches your thirst. You eat but you're never full. All these things that are a sign of these covenantal curses, if you will. And so again, he says here, this is what's happening. If you want to understand it, defilement is spread amongst the people to where this people is defiled before me. They're defiled before me. And yet if you want to think about this for a moment, there might be a thought in their minds that the way to get out of this is to simply have the temple. Right? What we're missing is the temple. The temple is this great place of holiness. God in the center of our lives and all His activities going on, if we only have the temple, then we won't be defiled anymore. It's a, a common way human beings think. If I go to church, I'm right with God. If I have a Bible on my table, maybe I don't read it, but that has to mean I'm right with God. But here's the problem with that. If that worked they would have never been in problem in the first place. If that worked, they would have never been exiled in the first place. They had the temple in the days before the exile. In fact, the prophets were constantly saying they were abusing the temple. You might remember Isaiah chapter 1. This people comes before me and they offer their sacrifices. And they pray out to me. And what does God say? More or less, they're trampling my courts. I don't want them here. He says, you pray to me. I'm not even listening to your prayers, says the Lord. Don't bother praying to me anymore. And what's the problem? Well, it can be summed up in that thing we hear often, that they looked at the Lord's temple as a den of thieves. Now, this is really important to get this right. Saying it's a den of thieves does not mean it's a place of robbery. It means what? What is a den for thieves? It's a place of refuge from their crimes. It means Israel can go out and do whatever it wants the other six days of the week, no matter how despicable or against the law of God, but so long as they come to the temple, they're safe. They're right with God. And Isaiah was saying, God says, no. God says, quit coming. 
Quit praying to me. Quit trampling my courts. No. If your heart's not in it, then you're missing the entire point of this religious system that's been set up, which is to point to some pretty important things. Arthur Pink, who our most recent booklet uh, is by out there, wrote something. He wrote it years and years ago. I read it years ago. But, um, but he was talking about how people are disturbed by the temple sacrifices. And as you read about uh, the animal being slaughtered and the blood being led, and you sit there and go, oh, it's disturbing. And Arthur Pink said, yes, it's intended to be. It's intended to show you that there is a consequence of sin. And it is death. It is the requirement of blood. That is what it is intended to do. If you're not bothered by it, then you don't understand it. And the problem that Isaiah is dealing with in chapter 1 is this. We're coming and offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It doesn't bother us. We don't care. It's the simple payoff we have to do to excuse the adultery I've lived in all week long. Or idolatry I've lived in all week long. Or whatever thieving I've done all week long. If I just cut the, have them cut the throat of an animal, then we're good. And God says you're completely misunderstanding this entire thing. Completely misunderstanding it. You see, it's supposed to show you the horrific consequence of sin. The cost of sin. That there had to be a sacrifice, right, to atone for the sin. It's supposed to point you to what Christ is going to come and do for you that you should recognize as horrific that it had to be done. That the precious Lamb of God had to go to Calvary's cross. You see, when you misunderstand the temple and you use it as a, as a religious system to just get out of your sins, you know, like an, an exchange, right, like a payment plan to get out of your sins, then you've misunderstood it. So if you think the temple coming back is going to make you suddenly righteous again or undefiled, you miss the point. Because it can't transfer that way. It can't transfer holiness to you that way. But it's given to you that you might have faith in what God is doing to have a righteous people. That it's only through atonement and mediation and intercession that you can be made holy. It's only through these things and your faith placed in them that you are made right with God. Now we could cue up Romans and go back to how Paul makes the point, I'm not inventing some new doctrine here. What does it say about Abraham? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. David said that blessed is the man whose iniquity is not accounted to him. Over and over again you can look back and see examples that it is by faith that we are saved. The just live by faith. Haggai says you must be a people of faith. And a people of faith are noticed in some things. A, they love God, they trust God. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. They obey God, not perfectly. We're not making a, a, a works-based righteousness here, but you can't deny the Bible says it. And Haggai says the, the fact that you've not been living by faith is made evident in the fact that you've not obeyed God over and again. And the consequences for that is all these problems that you've had. Now he comes back to some problems here, doesn't he? As we come to this second section, there's an amazing thing here, a prophetic a, a blessing, if you will, that's spoken. And uh, if you look at verse 15, there's a marker here of, of a of movement in the text. He says, and now, and you might think about in Romans where there's but now. These oftentimes are ways that the word tells us something's about to change. And he says there's a marker here. Carefully consider from this day forward. 
Look at this as a marker in time and think about what comes after this and what's come before it. What does he say here? If you look at verse 15, he says, from, uh, from before the stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. So what happened in those days? Well, here's what he says. One came to a heap of 20 ephahs, and what did they find? Ten. You're like, I know there was 20, but now there's only 10. And one comes to the wine vat to draw out 50 measures, this bazar measures, 50 measures of wine, and what do they find? There's only 20 there. In other words, what he's saying over and over again is you experience loss. Right? You experience loss. And he says this is not by accident. You haven't done anything wrong. You didn't have a hole in the bottom of your wine vat, although that might be how God does it. But he, he says, this is my actions against you. He says it very clearly. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hand. Now, that's a reference back almost literally to what God says in Deuteronomy as the consequence of disobedience under the covenant. He says that he will strike them with mildew and all these things. Loss, ultimately. In the Torah, it says this, Deuteronomy 28:22, The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, with mildew. This is the judgments of a people who are disobedient to the covenant of God. He says, but look at this marker in time. From this day forward. In other words, from the day that stone begins to go upon stone at the foundation of the temple, look from this moment forward and what will you see? It's a different story. It's a different story. It's no longer going to be a story of loss. No, look what he says. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. And here's what he says. Is the seed still in the barn? The answer to that is likely yes. In other words, what he's saying is the, the portion of the seed that you withheld for the, to plant and sow next year hasn't even been planted yet. Hasn't even been planted yet. That's how far out we are. We've got to still sow and then eventually reap. Right. So who can be a prognosticator as to what's going to happen with that seed? It's not even been planted yet. And look what else he says. What about the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranates, the olive tree? None of them have yielded fruit. So see where we are in this cycle uh, of, the, of the harvest coming forth. None of them even begin to bring forth fruit yet. And these were all the important agricultural aspects of, of Israel's economy. Figs and pomegranates and, and wine, you know, the grapes of the vine, all these things are important. He says none of them have begun to bring forth fruit. And yet I'm telling you this, the Lord says, I will bless you. The harvest next year isn't going to be like the ones of the previous 20 years. Next year, you're going to have a bumper crop, a bumper harvest. There's going to be so many grapes on the vine you can't imagine. So many pomegranates, so much will grow. And God says through Haggai, you know it's real because I'm not waiting till it's almost time to harvest it to say, look. God has said this will be a great harvest. He's saying before there's any evidence, it will be a great harvest. I'm declaring that the Lord says He will bless you this year. It will be a great harvest. So however many months down the road this is, that all those products come forth on the vine or on the tree, 
and the seed has been sown and then grows and it's time to reap it and you go, we've never had a harvest like this before. Haggai's saying, remember, God told you way back then what will happen. That there will be a great harvest. Why? Because the Lord is blessing you now. The Lord is blessing you. And why is He blessing you? Because you're being obedient to the covenant that He made with you. You're obeying His word and He is blessing you with the blessings of the covenant. I mean, just go back again to Deuteronomy where all those curses are. There's offsetting blessings as well. And they're now experiencing them. But my friends, as great a blessing as that is, it's not the greatest blessing that we find in the text. There's a few verses here at the end that we need to look at very quickly, and we will look at them quickly, just these few verses, 20 through 23, because there is something here, a covenantal blessing that is confirmed. As the people of the land, they have had a bunch of difficulties, haven't they? As they've come back into land, many difficulties. Many problems. But one of the biggest things we've talked about time and again is we've said it's not as if they have a Davidic king. And that's something that's difficult to say because on the one hand you'd say, well, there were children of David. There were descendants of David amongst the people. right? Zerubbabel is an example of that. He is a son of David. But we mean we say that they don't have a Davidic king. It means there was something they were greatly concerned about. Had God taken away His promise to David? Had God rendered it void, nullified? Now, we know God keeps His covenantal promises. And there were some maybe in in Judah, in that remnant that came back, that said, God will not fail to keep this promise. There will be a descendant of David who will reign forevermore. I don't know how, I don't know when, but God will keep His word. He will keep His promise. He must. But others might have said, I don't know. I mean, we don't have a clear Davidic king now. I mean, you know, Zerubbabel's great, but, you know, he organizes us pretty well, I guess. But there's nothing like what we had before. And they would point to some pretty important things, to texts that, that they could think of, like Jeremiah twenty two twenty four, the last clear Davidic king, Jehoiakim. It says this in Jeremiah twenty two twenty four: is the Lord is... Uh, finds him despicable as a king. He says, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, that's his other name, Jehoiachin, uh, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. Now, it's, this is important language. What is a signet ring? You remember when the prodigal son returns back, he closes him and he gives him the signet ring. It has a seal on it a ring that had a particular seal on it so that if you were going to sign something, the way you proved that you had been the one to sign it was with your ring. You would put wax on it and you would stomp your ring in and it would put a unique seal on there that people knew that's Rick's seal, that's Michael's seal, that's Jacob's seal, or that's the king's seal. And in those days, because rings were expensive to make, basically you were in some level of authority if you had a ring like that. And so what did that mean to say that someone was a, had a signet ring? It meant it represented their authority. right? If I received a letter from the king and it gave clear evidence of what he wanted from me and it was sealed right, with his signet, that was no different than if he'd come to my house and told me himself. I couldn't say, well, I wasn't sure. you know. He would say, did you not see my signet? Then I'd be likely led to some dungeon somewhere or beheaded on the spot. You... That is taken as his authority. 
So when he says that the Davidic king was his signet ring, he's saying something they had long understood. The Davidic king had an authority that was given to him by God. He was the king of the people of God. And what God is saying to this king, King Jehoiakim, he's saying, you were as my signet ring, and now I cast you away. I take it off and throw it away. This is leading right to exile. And some people said, how do we know when God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to say that, he doesn't mean Davidic kings plurally. Not one Davidic king, but Davidic kings plurally. In other words, how do we know we'll ever again have this great promise that God made to David, that he would build David a house, and that the one who comes from his line will rule and reign forevermore? Well, God settles it right here. Because if you look at the end of this section, at verse 23, and what's before this is a promise of God to move in eschatological terms. We saw a parallelism in the first chapter that was about restoring the temple and how he would move the nations to provide for the temple be built. But here he's talking about something very different, an eschatological movement of God in which he will shake heaven and earth and overthrow kingdoms and knock down Gentile powers, overthrow chariots and their riders. No one can stand in the day of the Lord. But notice what else he says here in verse 23. In that day, these prophetic visions, they often say, are telescoped. Things that are middle distance flow right into things that are greatly distanced. It all kind of gets pancaked together in one word. But he says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring. An heir of David shall once more be God's signet ring. Will bear the mark of his authority. Will be his servant once more, says the Lord of hosts. Now, immediately you say, okay, Zerubbabel is like a signet ring. And I believe it intends that. It intends in the present moment. If you look at this as kind of like a dual fulfillment prophecy, it intends that Zerubbabel in this moment is once again establishing the line of Davidic leaders who are a signet ring unto God. But it isn't ultimately talking about Zerubbabel, is it? Because he himself points forward to someone greater than him. In fact, we could go to the New Testament and see him in the line that leads to the one we speak of, the Christ. Now it says, not in this day, or in a week's time, or a year's time. No, it says in that day, in that eschatological day, in that last days, if you will. Then I will raise up one who will be my signet ring. An heir of David, an heir even of Zerubbabel. And he will be my signet ring, the one I have chosen. That word is very much the one I have elected for this purpose, the one I have set apart, the one I have called and am using, the one, Christ. He will be the one who bears my authority. You see what this is telling the people, the remnant of Israel that's come back into the land is God has not forsaken them. They've been through some rough times. He's using it to train them and teach them. But he is steadfast to keep his promise. And his promise is, one day that son of David will come, the one you're waiting on, the one I've told you about. And all of these things that I'm telling you are important in the present, the temple and the sacrificial system are all pointing to him. God hasn't forgotten. 
It will all come to pass. It's a promise that he hasn't forgotten his covenant. And my friends, as the people of God, we ought to be thankful for that because he hasn't forgotten the promises he's made to us either. Amen.